Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Ghani and welcome to another episode of the Atmospheric Tales podcast. Our interviewer for this episode is Amrit Sharma. Amrit is the founder of airpollution.io and the creator of several innovative digital products that help people access and understand real-time air quality. Most notably, he created Smokey, the friendly chatbot that delivers air quality reports on Facebook Messenger, Twitter, and WhatsApp. Professionally, Amrit is a developer advocate at Ecobee, a Canadian tech startup fighting climate change by helping people reduce their environmental footprint with artificial intelligence-powered smart thermostats. Our guest today is an atmospheric scientist with an expertise in air quality. She is the director and co-founder of OpenEQ, an open-source platform that improves access to air pollution data collected by governments and international organizations around the world. She has passions for the power of building international scientific partnerships and the democratization of scientific data to drive policy making. Her organization, OpenAQ, is now collaborating with the Environmental Defense Fund and Development Seed to build a platform to aggregate and harmonize air quality data collected around the world using low-cost sensors. The tools she has been working on are being used by academics, policymakers, entrepreneurs, citizen scientists in the fight to make clean air accessible for all. I am excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Krista Hazenkop. Welcome to the show, Amrit and Krista. Thanks, Shazad. Hi, Krista. Welcome to Atmospheric Tales. Hi, Amrit. It's great to be here with you. Awesome. Let's get started. So you started out as an atmospheric scientist measuring air quality in Mongolia. I'd love to know how that happened. Um, where did the inspiration for that come from? So when I was gearing up uh, to graduate from grad school, I was getting a, a PhD in atmospheric science at the University of Colorado. Uh, I was trying to figure out a way to apply my scientific skills in a more people-relevant in, I'd say, more immediate way than I'd been able to during grad school. And it's, it's something I'd been struggling with uh, for finding for a while. Um, I've always felt pulled in two different directions emotionally with my work, one towards science. It's something I, I just innately enjoy. Uh, and the other is doing work that serves the social good in some direct way. Um, and I think that that comes from the fact that, that I grew up uh, disadvantaged, quite poor. We were homeless at times and it was it was rough. So I, I feel a strong emotional pull towards work that gives power to people to affect change in their own lives in a way that science um, often does, at least in an immediate immediate sense. So, so back to being on the verge of graduating, I started researching all kinds of uh, ideas where I could kind of combine these two interests um, and use the skill set I'd worked pretty hard in grad school to obtain and also give my partner and I an opportunity to, to live abroad. So um, eventually, I ran across the fact that Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, had some of the most polluted air in the world, yet there are hardly any studies on it, like sort of even basic studies that you could build or evaluate, uh, you know, basic policy. Um, so I thought I could rustle up some equipment and some money to support a postdoc uh, to do this this basic research. Managed to do that and then um, ended up spending the next two years living there, conducting research with colleagues and then also interacting with a incredibly active uh, local air quality community there. Wonderful. So how did that lead to uh, OpenEQ? Where did the idea to build this global platform come from? Uh, and how, the, how has the journey been so far? 
Yeah, so the idea for OpenAQ definitely, um, the seed of it came from uh, experiences in Mongolia uh, as well as another set. So um, for one, when I was in Mongolia during my postdoc, I saw how the, the U.S. Embassy in Beijing began tweeting out air quality data and its really outsized impact with, with uh, different parties accessing that data and then sort of democratizing it for the public. So uh, people building uh, apps and suddenly, you know, millions of Beijingers walking around with real-time air quality data uh, that was communicated into to them in a way that they could readily understand. Um, and, and I was just sort of floored by that. So, you know, a foreign service officer slaps an air quality monitor on the roof of the embassy. Uh, I'm making it sound simpler than it is, but that, that's essentially what happened. And and it changed the, ultimately, I would say it changed the air quality in China. And that just seemed so efficient in terms of time and resources. And then the, the other experience later on, a few years later, I, I worked at the State Department um, because of that, that example I saw in Beijing. I was drawn to to that uh, project, and I l learned that they were expanding it to other other countries. And and through that work at the State Department, I realized just how many governments actually produce air quality data in real time, um, but don't make it readily accessible. Um, and it certainly wasn't shared in the same format from government to government. So so meanwhile, in that job, I also realized that if you looked at the epidemiological literature, our understanding of air quality and health were actually and, and super surprisingly to me, um, uh, really lacking in the most polluted places, exactly where you think you'd want that information. Um, and then at the same time, uh, the most policy relevant epidemiological studies had relied on government generated air quality monitoring. So it seemed like there was a very obvious gap there. And so from that and the experiences in Mongolia and also seeing what happened in Beijing with that one monitor, it kind of made the idea of, of harmonizing uh, the existing data in one place a, a, a no-brainer. So um, I first looked around for other established organizations that could uh, build what essentially OpenAQ is now but honestly failed to do that effectively. Um, so eventually uh, my partner and co-founder, Joe Flasher, who's a software developer, and I um, started building OpenAQ. That's amazing, what a journey. So um, what are some of the challenges of archiving data collected from all around the world? Um, can you tell us a little bit about your experience from different countries in terms of maybe the sparseness of the measurements or the challenges in obtaining data? I'd say, of course, to a zero order, one major challenge is there just simply isn't data in a lot of places. So, you know, across whole continents like Africa, large swaths of South America, Central Asia. Um, but I, I do think the amount of data that's available from governments is often underestimated. Um, I hear pretty frequently that there's no data in, in Africa produced by governments, and, and that, that isn't true. Um, there's actually quite a bit, but I, I think the challenge is uh, accessing that data and maybe uh, more directly incentivizing government agencies that are that are often pretty cash strapped um, and have many other competing priorities to to open up that data. Um, and I think another challenge has been relatedly defining, uh, communicating well what is meant by opening up truly opening up data. So you know not just putting data on a graph or a website or or even having a download button. So those are those are all helpful avenues to to get that info out. But I think to to truly open it up and make the most possible use cases come from that data, um, you need to make it programmatically accessible. So where a computer program can access and interpret the information, you don't need some some human in between clicking buttons. Um, so this is a subtlety. It's a it's a super important subtlety. It's a technical nuance. Um, and I think it gets overlooked a lot uh, in uh, by, by government open data policies in some places. And also 
by funding organizations that support other governments' air quality monitoring infrastructure, they'll require that the data is open, but they don't um, necessarily precisely prescribe what open means. That's so interesting. And many agencies around the world report AQI or air quality index numbers, but don't make the actual measurements like PM 2.5 concentrations available. What's wrong with that approach? And why do you believe that it's important to make the raw data available? So, so to be clear, my stance is the, I don't think there's anything wrong with air quality indices. Again, it's sort of one particular avenue for sharing the information. I think they're great for communicating a country's specific public health recommendations that, you know, for people to, to take a personal action due to air quality. They're easy to understand. They're, they're color-coded often. Um, but, but again, it's making and publishing AQI values, for example, are just one use case uh, of air quality data by one particular actor, in this case, and most commonly, the, the government. So it, it, I think if you want to unleash the full set of use cases by the full set of actors trying to do something around pollution, you publish the, the raw data in a programmatic matter, matter, manner. <laughs> Otherwise, it's kind of like if the only people that were allowed to run restaurants in the world were farmers, or if the only people who could create art were folks who produced paints and pencils. So nothing against either of those groups. I'm sure they'd create great stuff, but, but that would greatly limit the creative scope of the products that are created. So to maximize those products, you need to connect the raw materials like food, or say art or data in this case, uh, to a wider group so they can build more and, and build more amazing, impactful stuff than if only the producers of that good were the ones able to access that information. And with OpenAQ, you have reached a wider audience um, for this air quality data. Um, what are some of your favorite examples of scientists, policymakers, activists, or entrepreneurs using the OpenAQ platform to drive change? Uh, with the exception of Smokey, of course. <laughs> well, I mean, Smokey and AirPollution.io really are some of my favorite examples. But um, I guess I would say uh, generally I, I'm really in love with sort of the waterfall of work from different sectors that happens. I think that's actually how you get change to happen is, is really uh, going at air pollution from a variety of different um, avenues. And, and I think it's also especially the work that connects emotionally <laughs> to to air pollution uh, and, and make people feel feel the issue. Um, but that said, the, the, the geek in me loves to see projects where people ask very simple, timely questions of the data set and can get answers out in a relatively painless, timely, and, and uh, simple way. So for example, um, just the other day, I saw a preprint by a group in Norway, and it, it took a look. It, it asked a very simple question. It said, um, how has air quality and also public health been impacted by the, the COVID-19 lockdowns? Um, and the thing that they did was they looked at this in not just one city or one country, they did it across the world. Um, and, and that's a pretty straightforward question, but when you see an analysis for one city and one particular lockdown scenario, I think it can be tricky to, to you know suss out for sure. Is it the lockdown? Is it meteorology? Um, and there's a lot of ambiguity. But then if you look at several thousand stations in cities across the world and compare the changes of, at those specific stations during the lockdown phases with like, you know, years of data, uh, you start building up a pretty, pretty robust answer to what is, again, ultimately a super simple question. So I think I think that kind of work is just uh, really, really elegant use of the, of the data set. In addition to having an open data platform, OpenAQ also runs workshops around the world. 
where you connect people from different backgrounds that are all tackling air pollution in that region. How did these workshops get started and what has come out of these conversations? I think uh, ultimately we realized from the beginning that the data is not enough, not nearly enough. You know, data data doesn't change or enforce policies. It's, it's people who do at the end of the day. Um, so we also find that, you know, it's not large international efforts that often directly change local air quality. It's folks locally invested in their local air quality uh, and really their public health uh, that do. Um, and this seemed to happen faster when you have uh, people locally from a variety of sectors, not not, not just one particular one, uh, pushing for change, um, and even faster if they could actually be doing that work together. So that was the idea behind these workshops. And our, our um, uh, way to get people in was really using this sort of gravity of the, the open data we had on our platform um, to pull people in from these different sectors into the same room. Um, and then our goal was to help them find what's the low-hanging fruit that, you know, everyone in the room can get behind. And uh, we found sometimes that directly involves the, the open data, but a lot of times it hasn't. Um, in Sarajevo, Bosnia, for example, uh, folks from the, the local air quality agency, uh, some university professors, uh, some folks from a regional think tank there, they decided that there was, there was enough uh, air quality data uh, in Sarajevo. Uh, they didn't really need necessarily more data, but there hadn't been an analysis about the sources, like the various sources of those pollutants. So they devised um, and really sort of scraped together um, resources and funding to, to launch the first fuel campaign in Sarajevo. They looked at how much pollution came from where. Um, this is stuff you absolutely need to know in order to develop any sort of actual policy. Um, and it came together, the idea for that came together in the, in the workshop. Um, and uh, another example is in Accra, Ghana, uh, participants made a call to the government because of the lack of open data. So the government agency there uh, in charge of air quality monitoring does produce data, but it wasn't shared uh, in, a, in a fully open way. Uh, so they, this, these participants published an open access commentary uh, calling for the, the data to be more open. It attracted uh, some scientists who have been now working with them to deploy low cost sensing monitors in, in Accra and provide some source of open data. So um, we then, as OpenAQ, part of our nonprofit mission is to capture these stories and then share them out broadly so other people in other places can be inspired by their work um, and, and really amplify what they're doing so it has uh, even more, more impact. Great. And for our listeners, Sarajevo is the capital of Bosnia and Herzegovina, a country in Eastern Europe. All right, let's talk about um, data. So OpenAQ incorporates data from long-term measurement sites, like uh, those usually run by government agencies. However, many countries around the world, for example, many countries in Africa, have very few long-term measurement sites. But government agencies, academics, and others often conduct more short-term measurement campaigns, range, ranging from weeks to a few months. What can we learn from these short-term measurement campaigns? And what are some of the challenges of incorporating them on the OpenAQ platform? Short-term campaign data uh, can be ex useful for exactly the reason you point out. Um, I think it can fill gaps in the air quality landscape where there's just simply no no other long-term data uh, produced by, by other entities. So um, it definitely has value uh, from that. And, and sometimes even calling out that there's only short-term data available from, uh, say, a particular scientific campaign or, or government effort, it's enough to spur longer-term monitoring. Um, but it is a challenge to incorporate it into OpenAQ. Uh, it basically boils down to competing priorities and bandwidth of both the data producers and, and us as the data 
sort of harmonizer and share. Um, so uh, in OpenAQ, the vast majority of data ingested happens automatically from adapters that go out every 10 minutes and search for new data sources, uh, new data from sources that are producing data continuously. Um, but this sort of data, the short-term data, it's done as typically a one-off exercise. So it has to be formatted and uploaded manually. So that's that's intensive for both the, say, the researcher or the government official who's sharing that short-term data to get that data in the right format. And then it's uh, also manually intensive for OpenAQ to do it manually. Um, and, and then the other challenge is at the same time, um, because the data is from a discrete period of time, say it's just a few weeks, it's less likely someone's going to ping uh, the system uh, to request that data. So as the older the data gets, the more likely that that's even more the case. So it's still tremendously useful for, for a lot of efforts that look at the total data set, oftentimes groups that uh, use the, the data to combine with, say, say satellite-derived measurements for models. Um, but because it's not an automated process, it's just a bit cumbersome for both sides. We're actually working on changing that with a new tool, uh, but it will always be a less fluid process by the nature of the data source. Got it. That makes sense. OpenAQ's mission is to fight air inequality. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean by that? Sure. The, the term air inequality falls out of a broader term, I think, of environmental justice. And you know, environmental justice is this belief that environmental benefits and burdens should be equally distributed to, to everyone. Um, and we decided to focus more on a subset of environmental justice that we term air inequality. And it, that term's meant to capture the specific and severe human rights issue that uh, the inability to breathe clean air poses to the vast majority of the world's population. And we think air pollution is just such a massive problem. I mean, it's responsible for you know, one out of 10 deaths roughly uh, across the world that it really deserved its own term for the public to rally behind uh, and because it's that important. Totally. More than half of the world's population, including many countries uh, in the global north, still don't have access to clean air. Yet many leaders still choose inaction, even in the face of overwhelming scientific evidence. So how do you keep yourself motivated? Air pollution is tricky. Um, I mean, take uh, COVID-19. So I myself respond very viscerally to the immediate and therefore like seemingly more catastrophic nature of the disease. Um, but, but I know that air pollution kills more people on a yearly basis than we hope and estimate COVID-19 will. Um, but, but air pollution is this, this slow-moving catastrophe, catastrophe that makes it hard to feel in the same sort of way, I think. Um, so I think ultimately it's not scientific evidence or data that make, makes us take action. It's, it's emotional. It's much more emotional. Um, I, I think it's emotion that builds political will. I think uh, scientific evidence can help build that emotion, but it doesn't do it by itself. Uh, that's why it takes that waterfall of actors and that emotional connection uh, working on air pollution from different angles, uh, in my opinion. Um, and I guess I stay motivated because I also know this is not supposed to be a long and easy fight. Um, it will be a long and easy fight. Um, I also derive happiness from the winds around us with air pollution. I see more media articles, studies, apps, and awareness than ever. I see success stories for reduced pollution on nearly every continent. Um, but I also, importantly, remain unsatisfied. So for me, my motivation is in the combination of of deriving happiness from the progress we've made and staying unsatisfied. So I keep wanting to do more. And you do quite a lot. So I know on behalf of the OpenAQ community, uh, there would be hard, hard pressed to find someone who's done as much as you have to 
make uh, air pollution conversation um, really take off around the world in the last several years. So thanks for doing that. Open data and open source products are great for users because they are free. This is one of the reasons why OpenAQ is used and loved by academics, government agencies, startups, and citizen scientists. But how do you fund a project where the main product is free? What lessons have you learned and what tips do you have for other folks looking to do social good, especially in the open data and open source space? I won't lie, it's hard. <laughs> um... I, I see efforts to harmonize open data of, of various sorts besides just air quality um, and, and to build out sort of the ecosystem of tools that's possible around them as sort of a invisible infrastructure. Um, I think it's it's typically easier to get the, the shiny end product funded, so the beautiful data visualization or the study that has direct policy consequences. And, and those things are super important. Um, they're actually what touch the general public. But but if you build the, the, the that invisible data infrastructure right, you'll enable so many more of those applications downstream of, of the data. So, so we've learned over time to make um, a better case for the value of that invisible infrastructure and, and, and really to lean on our community to share what they are building and how it's been impactful. Um, it helps amplify their work and it also helps support ours. Um, we've uh, also been working on educating funders in this space on the value of, of open data sharing and, and harmonizing uh, this, this sort of um, data and building that infrastructure behind it, but it, it's definitely a struggle. You recently announced a partnership with the Environmental Defense Fund, or EDF, to now include data from more low-cost air, air pollution sensors on your platform. Why is that important and why do that now? Because we know that data from these low cost sensors may not be of the same quality as the existing data on OpenEQ. So we're very excited about this. And, and you know, you ask uh, why, why now? And I'd say, why not yesterday? Um, honestly, and honestly, that's because it's been because we now have uh, funding and support to do this from our partners like Environmental Defense Fund, um, working with Development Seed, also funding from Clean Air Fund and, and Climate Works uh, that that wasn't available previously. Um, and don't get me wrong, we're excited, but we know this will be very challenging. Um, low cost sensing is tricky in terms of the data quality, as well as many other issues that go into aggregating and harmonizing harmonizing uh, disparate sources that are are far more disparate than say the the government data sources we have currently on the the OpenAQ platform. Um, but but it's, it's really an unprecedented source of information about the global air quality landscape. Um, I also think it's, it's uh, the harmonizing effort that um, can push more sensor makers to be more transparent in how their, their algorithms work and push them towards ensuring quality. It's, it's hard to hide when you have a bad sensor if it always appears off next to all the other sensors. Um, and, and I will also say it's easy to underestimate the va the value of data you're not yet using. So when we first started OpenAQ and harmonizing the, the government data, one thing I heard repeatedly from many colleagues in the research community was that researchers would, would never use the data from the platform. Um, the data was captured in real time, it, so it wouldn't be reliable enough. Who knew what quality controls were used by various governments since they did different things and, and it wasn't knowable anyway of what precisely they were doing. Um, and now we see, you know, 100 different citations in Google Scholar for the data accessed from the platform. So people people find a way, um, and it's not because 
they compromised on data quality. They, they just learned the caveats and the nature of this particular data source, and they managed to extract valuable like insights from it all the same. So to be clear, I think it will be tricky for us to do um, from the technical aspect to sustaining the cost of it, frankly, but I have complete faith that at the end of the day, people will find incredibly impactful ways to use that harmonized low-cost sensing information in uh, ways we probably have a hard time imagining right now. Thank you so much for your time today, Krista, and thank you for building the OpenAQ platform. I know a lot of my work from Smokey to the Emoji Air Pollution Map or my website uh, would not be possible without OpenAQ. Um, and also, thank you for nurturing this global OpenAQ community. Thank you so much, Amr. It's wonderful to be here with you. With that, I would like to thank our interviewer, Amrit Sharma, and our guest, Krista Hazenkope, for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe and share.